So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Right? It, the randomization is the key. Yeah. Don't you, don't you think? I mean, if it was the same checklist, suddenly you'll do exactly what you've always done before when you get a prompt. And we get them all the time. We don't Prompts are everywhere. We just don't recognize them. The little red button on a, a tab or an icon on your screen that says there's something new, that's a prompt. A, a text message or a Slack message, those are prompts. But we're really good about learning how to dismiss them quickly. But if they're different, like you said, each time, that randomization would cause, I think, a neural investment that they had. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show we've got Andrew Webb. Andrew, thanks for doing this. Oh my goodness, this is such a treat. I, we're going to have a lot of fun today. <laughs> so give people a quick background on what you've been doing at Stanford and what you're up to these days. Sure. So I have been working with the Behavior Design Lab uh, now at Stanford for a couple of years. And the principal manager there and the one who's founded it was Dr. B.J. Fogg, who ultimately is kind of the habit guru out there on the West. There are quite a few habit gurus, but he's absolutely one of the top three. And he just finished writing his book called Tiny Habits that came out last year. And a lot of the great stuff that we're seeing floating around from habits, he's the one who's done the research behind it. And so it's been a lot of fun for me at the Behavior Design Lab to look at not only how do we help people change, but how do we help them learn how to do that themselves? That's what I love doing is when people can figure out ways to do it themselves as opposed to requiring outside sources. That's great. And so how did this turn into the podcast and everything you're doing now? Yeah. So, you know, it was a few, let's see, I got my MBA in 2000, I think it was 12. And afterwards, I thought I was a full-blown, die-hard, red-blooded entrepreneur. I thought I came out of there thinking that was my life, and I loved it. And so I started a number of companies. Some did really well, some not great, as we know how it is if you have that same disease as entrepreneurship. <laughs> and they were all revolved around training and custom education for organizations, designing content for organizations. So a lot of training, which is, of course, I know, just your background, too or part of it at least. And so I loved designing content for organizations. And then I remember specifically, oh, I would say it was about seven or eight years ago when I was uh, in Florida at the time and I was with 150 different teachers. And I remember walking through the experience with them thinking that we were killing it. I thought, you know what, this is going well. This has been an incredible session. I had them write their goals of what they were gonna do to change. They were absolutely committed. They were motivated. And then I remember they even had accountability partners, everything you're supposed to really do to help them achieve that transfer, to change their behavior. 
And honestly, I got a probably a big head. I thought I'm doing some good work here. Except what would you think happens that seems to happen so often? I remember doing a post assessment a couple of months later just to see the impact. And of course, nothing had changed. Their behaviors had not changed. All that great feeling that we felt at the time didn't make an impact. And I kind of, it was a big blow, honestly, to my ego that I thought I was so great, but I wasn't. I wasn't doing the work that I had thought I was doing. And it was at that time I had made a huge pivot, so doing a lot more research. How do we help people shift their behaviors, especially in the environments that they can be most productive and provide fulfillment in their lives? And that's when I got steeped into the research on habits. That's when I became enamored with those who have tried to crack the code on what I just think is the most important work. And and it's the most uh, enjoyable work for me. And so from then, I, I started working with some of the thought leaders like BJ Fogg. I've done some other research with some other leaders that have found ways to help organizations, but more principally individuals, find high leverage habits in their lives. And, and you kind of had entrepreneurship in the blood. Can you tell us a little bit about your dad's story? And, and obviously, we know each other because I'm such a big fan of your brother. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I've always heard my dad say growing up that it's a disease. And at first, because he was pretty successful early on, I didn't buy into that. But I think most of your listeners who are entrepreneurs probably can relate that there are times it absolutely feels like that. You cannot help it. It's something that's just stuck to you. And so early on, he started what was what is now Franklin Covey. So he and a dear friend of his merged with Hiram Smith at the time, and that was in 1983. And so I was a young boy hearing all sorts of this content that they taught about time management, about daily goals, about tasks and values. I grew up and that was in the water. And they did well. They merged with Covey. I think we were talking earlier about in the 90s. And, you know, it was interesting. One of the techniques that they used is something that I've, we've had a few heated dinner conversations times with my dad about this, but it was a fabulous marketing idea where in every training, they would ask their learners to write a 21-day letter, which is cool. I think the, the science they said was that a habit takes 21 days to form. So we want you to do this right in your Franklin Day Planner for 21 days. And once you've done it, write us a letter back. Well, the problem is that's not real research. There's some really funny stories about where that came from. It actually came from a plastic surgeon, Maxwell Maltz, who told and often worked with a lot of thought leaders and influencers at the time in the 80s that 21 days was all it took for you to cement in a habit. And so I remember talking to my dad about that early on. I said, Dad, that's not true. He said, I don't care. It was good stuff. <laughs> it worked. So I think that's always been fun for me to watch how it's been a wonderful journey for him. But I've also seen the downside where it can consume you unless you're careful with the work you're doing and the work you're supposed to be doing in life. Well, I remember hearing that story in, in your one episode. By the way, congratulations on having such a great podcast. I feel like your production quality and your storytelling in there is great. So congrats on that. You are so kind. Thank you. Well, tell us another one of the principles. I think I think this is something all of us, you know, realizes willpower isn't enough. And, and yet, you know, our old habits are such deep ruts. Most of us struggle to, to get all the habits in our life we say we want. Yeah. And it's the ongoing battle, isn't it? I mean, we're all the human. And I think often we're comparing ourselves to others who perhaps have figured out a way to do something similar in their lives. And we think, well, if they're doing it, I should be doing it. 
I think so often we discount our own humanity and our own individuality in the journey. And I think that's the key word. It is a journey of change. It changes a process and not an event. And so what a lot of the you know principles that we deal with in microbehaviors, are, like you said at the podcast, is we take some of the very best research in behavioral design. And first, we, we try and convey it in a w- really entertaining way by focusing it with the context of stories from the past. So like you said, we'll bring in actors and we'll make sure people are attentive because there's context behind it. That There's a story about an African hunter who figured out that, my goodness, I'm killing all these gorillas. How is it possible that I can be doing such a thing? And that, interestingly enough, these stories provide such rich context for people to say, okay, well, how does that relate to me? Or how a blind pilot, all of a sudden he gets, he's driving, flying his plane, and then he goes blind in the middle of one of his flights. Well, how in the world does that relate to you? And I just say, as a plug, come listen to the podcast and give us your feedback and you'll learn. Because well, can we finish that story? He, does, he doesn't die. He goes he blind not in the die. middle of the fight I, and doesn't there, die. Yeah. That's a really important yeah. part of that story. That's a very good point. Thank you for following up with that. Because we're pretty positive about how we deal with these things. Yes, that's what's so amazing. He doesn't die because of the habits, this automaticity he developed going over and over and over the same routines in the cockpit. And I think that's, let's go from there. Let's talk about that. That's what's so powerful about habit. We do these things actually about half of our day, 43% on average of our day is habit-based where we're acting in automaticity, as they say, which means that our executive brain, it, it allows our executive system to work elsewhere. So you can be doing the dishes, putting your socks on, driving to work, eating your sandwich you do every time. And that frees up your brain because it had practiced the answers to previously solve problems, which is so powerful, I think, for anybody who's wanting to change their behavior in a way that they make more of an impact, whether it's with their family, their wives, their spouses, their husbands. If you've learned how important and how essential those things are, then you can start to change your world around you. The problem is we're doing it and we don't even know we're doing it half the time. So it usually takes a little bit of investment or an inventory to say, okay, this is the time I'm doing something that I always do. And that's a really powerful way to actually trigger yourself as a context prompt to do something different. It's that's one of the best ways to shift a slight behavior. You know, I was so glad, you know, our, our mutual friend, Lindsay Hadley, who, who got us reconnected here for this, when she was telling me about what you're up to, I was excited. I don't know if you know, before our company was called Greystoke Media, we were called Mylan Media because oh, I'm so fascinated wow. with how myelination leads to, you know, you know meaningful repetitions, deliberate practice can lead to extensive myelination, which, you, which can achieve mastery, you know, those high leverage superstar performers, right? So this is a super yeah. interesting arena for me. When did you, I, I'm sorry, I know you're one normally asking questions, but no, where did no. that come from for you? You know, it really started with Dan Coyle's book, The Talent Code. You know, uh-huh. you, you look okay. at this show and we have pro athletes and billionaires and Hollywood filmmakers and all these people who have really uh, achieved something uncommon, right? And, right. you right. know, just finding out like kind of the science behind like this idea of practice makes perfect where that's wrong and where it's right. And mm-hmm. and people being able to like, I, I think for some reason, like me finding out like the physiological changes that happen in the brain through meaningful repetitions outside the comfort zone, you know, and, and how that can be sped up with a feedback loop and these kind of things, all of a sudden, like it made it harder for me to quit 
it made it harder for me to procrastinate. I claim I want to get so good at such and such, yet I know that you can't, like you can't, it's not like a test. Like I'm such a procrastinator. I made it through my college years and everything doing like, you know, 10% of the work and 95% of the time and then staying all, staying up the night before to do the whole project and you know, mm-hmm. do the whole th- mm-hmm. three week project in 12 hours and getting the top grade in the class. You know, so I, I kind of didn't mm-hmm. have to pay the price for my procrastination a lot. And right. Finding out that science was like, oh, if I don't do the meaningful repetitions that would grow myelin today, I can't cram on the weekend. Like, I can't right. make that up later. I either grew myelin today or I didn't, you know? And and just mm-hmm. understanding certain things about how stuff gets encoded into long-term memory and, and how that right. stuff relates. It's what led me to BJ Fogg. And, and just, again, him taking complex things and making it so accessible for regular humans like me, I just, I feel like it's such a gift. So. Oh, it. And so few can do it as well as I think they have done it. There are quite a few who have simplified it. And simple is not easy. But I've always said I love your response to just your feeling. And I think that's true with most people. When they learn what happens, the neuroplastic response to change and how that myelination happens, how their nerves dramatically create grooves that they're dealing with or can shift. I honestly believe if we fully knew what was happening within our minds, we would marvel at the majesty. Mm -hmm. I have thought about it over and over. We just can't fully, I mean, we're still trying to figure it out. And ever since the fMRI came out and became a toy for scientists, we've learned a whole lot, but we keep learning a whole lot more. I think we've learned that we don't know near as much as we thought. And the more we do learn, the more we are in awe, all that is actually happening within. And, and I just to kind of continue on that one, I feel like for me, you know, that so that that book led me on to bounce and talent is overrated and peak and the beginner's mind and, you know, a bunch of these other, you know, Robert Greene's mastery, other things that just continue mm-hmm. to confirm it over and over. And I just started to see it everywhere, you know, like. Over the years, our consulting firms had all these special operations and intelligence agency clients. And before that, when I worked at the Arbinger Institute, I had those kind of clients, right? And I just look at like, you know, I spent my youth planning on being a pro snowboarder, right? And just live, breathe. Oh, you were were stuck in that too? Me too. My gosh. My my walls, the walls of my bedroom were just pages ripped out of Transworld snowboarding taped to the wall as wallpaper. You know what I mean? Right. So literally, um, I'm going to send you a picture of my teenage room. Exact same thing. <laughs> okay. Exact same so, thing. I had no idea. You got to come up and come do some some backcountry. I got I've got an extra snowmobile up here for you. Come come do some backcountry. Let's do it. So, but for me, like I started watching the TED Talks. I started reading the books. I started I started focusing on it a bit, and then I start seeing it everywhere, over and over, yeah. all over the place in movies, in completely unrelated subjects. You see, like. You know, my one of my biggest business heroes, Warren Buffett, I'm always talking about on the show, like when you start to realize like the amount of time that he has dedicated to reading annual reports and trying to spot a durable competitive advantage in a company, then putting money into it, which is going to have a more emotional commitment. And having the feedback loop of it, it made money or not, right? And and you just like, you know, he and his partner, Charlie Munger, joke around about their kids thought about them as a book with legs growing out the bottom because all they did was read, you know? <laughs> and like Warren Buffett says, it's really easy to get rich. All you need is eight hours a day to read and think, right? Which right. most of us can p- grass off and go, oh, that must be nice or whatever, right? 
But when you really dig into it and you hear about like him starting making his first investment as an 11 year old, and then as a teenager starting to go to the library to check out Moody's manuals, and like you start to investigate what were the, you know, to use your words, behaviors that he participated in consistently stretching himself year after year after year, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it just shows up. You know, he, he was such a huge fan of what? Go ahead. I was just going to say that it's incredible for us. That's actually one of the things that we do is we show, like Warren Buffett's a great example. I tell a story in one of our episodes about Winston Churchill. Very same thing, because context is so essential with the habits and the daily routines. Some people are so incredibly impressed by the output that Winston Churchill was able to give during World War II. Right when he was elected, I mean, it hit. I mean, he, when he became prime minister, he, it hit. And he only took eight official days vacation during the war. And there's no greater stress that I think can be imposed on any human being than managing that war at that time. But what they don't realize is he had learned because of that context, in a wartime context, how to develop a routine where he can give absolute high put output. He did that in World War One when he was war secretary. He did it or of the Navy. All of these routines he had developed along the way prepared him for that time and that moment in his life when he could create incredible output that nobody could keep up with. Habits are really powerful in a way because it's, it allows our, like I said earlier, our executive system to go do other work. So if you think about it, it's not going to be efficient for a CEO to go and build the spreadsheets or go clean the bathroom window or restock the fridge. That, those are all important things in the company, perhaps. But the CEO's got other features and other aspects that are far more meaningful to the company. And that's exactly what habits do. They allow our minds to go to a place that allows us to work and keep moving in a way that perhaps we hadn't even fully appreciated. And that's what, so Churchill did it too. When Churchill, his routine was so structured. And we see the same thing with some CEOs today. We love to talk about how Steve Jobs, he minimizes the kinds of decisions he has to make because he decides for one thing. Mark Zuckerberg does the same thing. I'm going to wear the same things because I'm going to reduce the type of decision fatigue because I want to use it elsewhere. So Churchill did the same thing. His routine was so structured. He'd go for eight heavy hours in the war rooms, come back home, take his famous one-hour naps, and then he'd go again for another eight hours, and his war cabinet couldn't keep up with him because he was so efficient at it. You know, I think one of the things that I appreciated from one of your episodes is something when I've taught these things, you know, like even to like really elite special operations units, right? They've had me come in and teach a leadership class. Right. And I'm going through the science of some of this stuff. And you can just see the wheels turning in their head of like, that's why it works, you know? And <laughs> like right. feedback, I'll right. get days and weeks later, like, oh, the guys loved that part, da da da. And that's just mo- so motivating, blah, blah, whatever. Right? But, but one of the things that I liked is when you talked about like the NASA checklists, right? And how routines can, can deceptively make us worse. You know, like you go through a number of these books on deliberate practice and they talk about like how often a doctor who's been a doctor for 25 or 30 years is worse because of their ego that they've got everything handled, right. but they haven't been pushing outside the comfort zone. Right. You know, like when I'm, when I'm talking about that principle, I tell people, and I'd love to know what your version of this is, but I tell people, hey, anybody know somebody who's been driving for more than 20 years? You wouldn't necessarily consider an expert driver. Everybody laughs. They're not NASCAR. Right? Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm like, you know, why is it that I've been typing probably almost every single day of my professional life? So, you know, 20 years I've been pretending to be an adult and I probably don't type a lot faster than I did 19 right, years ago. Right. Right. Yeah. What, 
like doesn't practice make perfect like if i said i wanted to get better at something wouldn't you tell me to practice right and when we're not when we're not being pushed outside the comfort zone the brain doesn't have to reach and it atrophies and will you tell that nasa story and nasa story yeah yeah so early on the this nasa who you got to recognize they're recruiting the elite of the elite I mean, these aren't just good pilots. They're the best pilots, and then the 1% of those pilots, and the top 1% of those. And we all know how incredibly difficult it is to get them in there. So these aren't fuddy-duds they're bringing in, right? And so what happens when they bring them in to, to NASA, all of a sudden they realize a recurring pattern. Because these checklists are so essential for safety that they saw that very often what happens was called inattentional blindness. These, these pilots were quite literally seeing lights flicked up when they were supposed to be down during the checklist. Why? Because for the last 10,000 times they've done the checklist, the light was usually lit up. Well, that's how it was before. I think the correct or the exact verbiage was, I saw it that way because that's how I had seen it before. And it's very similar to all of us in our own lives. We do it a certain way because that's how we've always done it before. And then you nailed it. What NASA needed to figure out was how to create a deliberate intervention to wake them up neurologically, to prompt them to change. And so many times we don't have that ability within our own lives. And it's, the irony is, if you go read a lot of the literature, the habits that we have during our lives are the best prompts to force us to wake up. So if it were a, a, a pilot, for example, they might tell them the second you flip this switch, your finger touches that switch is a prompt for you to recognize you need to go back and reread this statement, something you haven't done before. If they did that and it said in a training like you have done a thousand times, you say, remember, you got to go pay attention to this. And everyone nods their head. They'll say, yeah, you're right. We need to pay better attention. Well, that's not going to get you anywhere because habits don't care what you want to do. They only care what you've been doing before. And so that's what they had to learn how to do. And I mean, NASA took some serious time and brought in a lot of behavioral scientists to figure out ways to help, just like you said, wake up their pilots who were, and you'll forgive the pun, on autopilot. Well, you know, as you say that, I think about like today, other options that we have, you know, so many of us, when we were a beginner entrepreneur, we read book like Michael Gerber's E-Myth, or maybe as a more advanced entrepreneur, we read books like Atwal Gawande's The Checklist Manifesto. Do you know that one? I, I have not read that one. I'm, I'm writing, it, writing it down. It's awesome. It's this Bay Area physician who's like, hey, why is it, you know, my colleagues and I are so smart. We went to 12 years of school after we went to 12 years of school. Why right. is it that like construction guys never have have a skyscraper fall down but sometimes my colleagues cut off the wrong leg in surgery and oh yeah like it's not because they're not smart enough right and and he just goes through like whether it's aerospace industry formula one racing people who build skyscrapers and just their checklists of checklists right yeah, yeah but something that i think he's missing that you've identified there is when does the checklist become like when do we become blind to a checklist and like as you're saying right. that, i'm thinking man you know it would be great for for people who are trying to you know whether you need a checklist for safety safety or whether you need it so that you can bring on a lowered skill employee and they can still get the job done, right? Training new people stuff. Think about our smartphones. Imagine if we could have randomized checklists, you know, and like stuff might be on it this time and not on it next time. And which would you know cause I mean? cognitive investment, right? It, the randomization is the key. Yeah. Don't you, don't you think, I mean, if it was the same checklist, suddenly you'll do exactly what you've always done before when you get a prompt and we get them all the time. We don't, prompts are everywhere. We just don't recognize it. The little red button on a, a tab or an icon on your screen that says there's something new, that's a prompt. A, a text message or a Slack message, those are prompts. But we're really good about learning how to dismiss them quickly. But if they're different, 
like you said, each time that randomization would cause, I think, a neural investment that they hadn't had earlier on. It would force cognitive, it's what it does, it's force cognitive disfluency, they call it. Something where you literally have to think harder than what you were thinking or how you thought about it before. So I like that. Yeah, interesting. Well, tell us another tip that business owners can can do, whether it's for our own habits or our teams. Oh, yeah. But I mean, this is what we love doing at Microbehaviors is we take stories from the past and we help you understand how they worked in the past so that you can apply them today. And, you know, we've done a number of different ones that I think are fun for our listeners. I've talked just recently talking about digital habits. We, we brought on a real dear friend of mine. Her name's Amy Blankson, and she's one of the best experts on digital health and digital well-being. And I think for a lot of your listeners, this is the dilemma, is this tool that I have in my hand should be a wonderful instrument, should be a tool for adding value and productivity. But if you ask them in their heart of hearts, is it really providing those things? Well, the data is clear. It's not. In fact, it's getting worse. So how is that possible, right? And so one of the things that we talk about in our episode on digital wellness and well-being is that there are small little things you can do in a meeting or even at home that can help impact how productive you are and how focused you stay, or even if you're in flow state. I know you've talked about that before, how you stay in flow. One of the things she talks about is, I think, so fascinating. It's called the mere presence effect. So when you go to a meeting, just having your phone right next to you creates the conditional triggers of that same disconnection, where it's as if you are constantly on edge, you need to go check it. You need to just see if anyone slacks you. You need to know if an email has come through. The mere presence of the tool in your eyesight limits your ability to focus. And so we talk about put it away. If it's an important meeting and you really believe it's important walking into it, put it away rather than willingly incapacitating yourself, which is what often happens. And you'll see it in meetings all the time where they'll be in a meeting, even at Zoom, you'll watch people and they'll get a ping, you'll hear it maybe, and they look at their screen. That's 2.2 seconds to check their screen. Okay, interesting. But it takes a whole lot longer for them to get back to the same frame of mind they were before they were interrupted. So those are some of the things we talk about in microbehaviors. And we usually, that one we tell with a fun story about a scientist who he learned very quickly in his life. He spent six months in a cave underground and he became so beholden to the phone. He was going down just to study how a lot humans live without time. But I think really, if you look at it, it's not about chronobiology that we're interested in. It's that that phone for him, as he'd call up every day to report how he's doing, it became his life. He became both a product and a victim of that communication. So that's kind of how we relate all of this great research to fun stories and help people really make use of it. And then they walk away with one single behavior that they can do that day to start changing their lives. Interesting. Well, um, it's great. Let's keep going. What's another one? So let's see. We talk about, you want to talk about other episodes? Yeah. So one of the fun that I think our very first episode is, I think, fascinating for a lot of people because habits aren't just about our physical actions and behaviors. Very often and most often, they are really how we perceive the world around us. We are what we repeatedly do, yes, but what we repeatedly do is often triggered by how we think. And so one of the things that we talk about at our very first episode, and I wanted to talk about this because it sets the foundation for how we see the behavioral research, is a hunter named Carl Akeley, who at the very turn of the century started to kind of have these feelings about how he was 
hunting. Now, he was asked very often to go and build taxidermy exhibits for the best museums in the world. And it's so easy for us to say, okay, that's interesting, but how in the world could he go and kill all of those gorillas, just slaughter these gorillas? And you read his journal entries, that's exactly what he's doing. These beautiful animals, rhinos, giraffes, lions. I mean, these are two of them, which are on the extremely endangered list today. You read his story and you say, that guy messed up. But the truth is, if you dive in a little bit more, you learn that at his time and in his world and the kind of society he lived in and what they understood at the time, he was doing a service to everyone. Everybody at the time was so grateful because they believed that was the only way that they could preserve the education of these animals, teaching people about them and help them understand what was going on. It's called for us, when we look at people from the past and we kind of make snap judgments based on their behavior, historians like to call it presentism, where we are asking them to prescribe to a set of rules that we prescribe to, but that they've never agreed to. And the truth is that's a great foundation for some relational habits about how quick we judge others, these snap judgments we make of others. Asking people around us in our environment to prescribe the rules based on the experiences we've had in our own lives based on the upbringing we've had, the socioeconomic conditions we've had, all of those things that have contributed to our own personality, we want people to abide by those rules. And so we talk about how, what's a microbehavior that might help you intervene here. The moment you create a judgment, the moment you, this was the microbehavior in our first episode, the moment that you cast a label on someone is a great trigger for you to think and invoke a really sacred state of your mind. And that's the creative state. And just think of a wild, even outrageous, creative situation they may be facing. The more creative, the better. Because why? All of a sudden, you're invoking that sacred state that's far more productive, far more creates tendencies of positivity. And so I think it's really fun for people. I've had really fun reports back that they come out with the most outrageous, funny, some outlandish situations just in their own mind. And you can think of crazy stuff in seconds. And you know what you're doing? All of a sudden, you're being challenged by your own creativity and focusing on something positive versus the original judgments of others that we often do hundreds of times a day without even fundamentally recognizing it. So that's our first episode. I think it's a fun one because it helps create, I think, an open framework for the rest of the episodes. Yeah. So when you think about maybe going in a different direction, when you think about habit initiation, what what's one of the what's one of the tips that you would start someone out with? They're saying like, I realize just sticking to willpower isn't going to be good enough for this. I need to build a habit around this if I'm eventually going to get what I want. What what are some yeah. of the things that you do when somebody says, Andrew, I want to build a habit to do X? Yeah. First, I'd say, let's be clear what the behavior is. A behavior is when uh, motivation and ability and a prompt all come together at the same moment. And most people start with motivation, kind of like you alluded to. So how am I going to stay motivated to go to the gym every morning at 6 a.m. or 5.30 a.m.? Because we need to design for our lesser selves. That's the wrong order. You need to start with a prompt. What's the prompt in your daily lives that will trigger a new behavior? Because what we just talked about it at length, we need that reminder because we're in automaticity. We're the blind, we're the pilots. We're the, we need a reminder to wake us up. And so I'll give you a great example for me. I wanted, I wanted to clean my car. I got a new car. I love it. I'm excited about it. Problem was my old car, I messed up. I left dirty. I kept trash in there all the time. And so my new behavior I wanted was to keep my car clean at all times. 
Now, that's interesting because I know that I'm going to keep it messy. It's, I know that I, if I get a trash wrapper, I'm going to keep it in the side console. So I needed a prompt to remind me to do something. Here's the next step. One is prompt, and then the second thing is to scale the behavior way back. Make it almost stupid simple. You can't help but do it. So instead of going to the gym like it's a huge behavior, it's getting out your gym shoes the night before. Simple. And if you do it, celebrate it. That's awesome. So for me, if I wanted to keep my car clean, I needed a prompt. Well, the prompt was what? When I turn my button off, the button to turn off the car, that's the prompt. And what's the scaled back behavior? One wrapper. Pick up one wrapper in the console. That's it. That's all I needed to do. And then celebrate it if you do it. But here's the point. Are you going to do more? Of course you'll probably do more. But if you don't do more, that's okay. You need to celebrate that you've just changed your behavior. And I've done it. So I started with one wrapper, Jess. And then all of a sudden, every time I turn off the car, I pick up another wrapper. And then all of a sudden, I have all my kids' binkies in my hands. And all of a sudden, even old diapers that may have been left in the car. For whatever reason, I kept that car clean. And I never, ever kept my other car clean. So the key is find a prompt, scale the behavior back, and make sure that when you do it, celebrate it. Because you will create momentum. And this goes back to the initial point we made. Habits are a process. Mark Twain talks about this. Habits should our habits and should not be flung out the window by any man, but coaxed downstairs a step at a time. And it's a process of change, but you've got to find ways of creating a positive reward when you create or when you actually fulfill these small, tiny habits. But it makes the difference. It's, it's what is sustainable. It's far more sustainable. The literature shows us than trying to gut it out, create willpower at the end of the night and not eat any chocolate or candy at the end of the night or you just willpower is not the answer. Motivation is not going to get you there. We've got to find other ways of getting there. Yeah, I love it. Well, if people want to check out the podcast or connect with you, where are the best places for that? So podcast is microbehaviors. I'd love for them to listen. I'd love feedback. They can email me through our website, mymicrobehaviors.com. And honestly, I'm rigorous about feedback. People's insights are so helpful to me. And I would just love to hear what they have to say. We've been on the journey now for a few months, and I'm blown away at the reception. It's been a little humbling, and I probably bit off a lot more than I can chew, if I can be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, we, we've covered a lot of subjects here. What's something we didn't cover? Jeez, man, we did cover a lot, didn't we, in a short amount of time? Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know. I think we covered a lot about the podcast itself. I, I'm super pleased that you would just let me talk about it, something I'm so passionate about, if I can be honest. I think we covered everything that I'll spend the entire my entire life talking about because it's just naturally what I love. So thanks for letting me just do that. That's <laughs> a blessing. In well, let, let's go for another direction then. What's what's one of the what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Oh, you know, I'll tell you, that's such a good one. And this is probably where I first learned about the power of these small little behaviors when I was a teenager. I um, walked into my dad's den, and I was very rebellious. We had been butting heads. I had grown my hair out really long, and at this time, I think it was dreadlocks. So remember, (laughs) we're snowboarders, yes. That's who we were. Mm -hmm. And I walked into his den ready to fight. I wanted to pick a fight, and he could tell. We had been fighting recently that week about my friends, I think, something that's common for every parent, I believe. And I walked in, and... As I started to poke and prod, trying to get him aggravated, he stopped and looked at me and he said, Andrew, teach me why you think your friends are more important than your family. And I had heard my dad use that word, teach me, I don't know how many times, but for this time, for whatever reason, it meant something to me. 
And I was willing in just that sliver of a moment to be a little bit more humble than what I normally was, which wasn't often. And then I said, Dad, why do you always say that? And he said, if I'm willing to say that in these moments, I think it has brought me more opportunities of learning and growth than any other. And so the piece of the dice he gave me was, and I've used it ever since, that in those moments when we really don't have an answer or when we may be in hostile situations with people we're working with or our own relationships that we love, I have used that little micro behavior all the time is simply ask, teach me. And it has brought me a wealth of wonderful experiences as a result. Honey, I feel like a lesson I learned over and over and over is about humility. Like it's like the gift that keeps on giving is just hard to hard to choose. You got it. It's so hard, but it's a process. I this goes back to the theme, Jess. We are all in this journey together and very often we need to be patient with ourselves. It's a process of change and we're probably doing far better than we're giving ourselves credit for at times. Mm-hmm. Love it. Well, thanks for doing the show. This is fun. Oh my gosh. Again, such a treat to talk about this with you. These are my passions. I know it's a passion for you. I want to spend more time on myelin and the neuroplasticity side. Let's do that sometime too. (laughs) Sounds great. Okay, my friend. Talk soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks again, Jess. Okay. Bye everyone.